if you're new or this is your first time, uh, my name is Drew Simpson. This is Aaron Weiser. We're both pastors here. Yeah. Um, I want you guys to feel welcome here. Uh, we're so happy you're here. We also would love to know that you are here. Um, the best way to do that is uh, a welcome card. We have one uh, over there, the info table. So when the service ends, you go over there, fill that card in, turn it in, and you get a gift from a ministry in India we support. It has a really cool story yeah, that's great. that you get to hear about when you do that. Um, and know that as we're uh, here gathering together, uh, that we get to encounter the living God. He created everything, but he wants right. to, right here today, meet you in a personal, powerful, and transformative way. Um, and Amen. so we're going to do that yeah. through the word here in just a minute with our one, our only, Skip, skip Bauer Socks. Let's give it up. Give him a hand, everybody. I can't hear you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you called me up. I had actually drifted off there for a minute. <laughs> yeah. We, we were giving you a little, a little prep there. The one, the, the only. Skip. Skip. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's not your funeral. Goodness gracious. <laughs> well, um, so we're getting into another one of our weeks. I'm really excited to hear you teach. You always kill it. Also, your churchwide, your message leading up to the sermon was probably one of my favorite to date. Oh, the, the little, little article? Little teaser, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was telling Edson, um, I got a lot of feedback on my, my <laughs> church ride where I described what my funeral will look like. And I got a lot of feedback. <laughs> Wait, and yet, we'll, we'll just say, I know that sounds like a downer, but it really wasn't. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> well, what strikes me as odd is that since then, all this feedback, and yet no one has said anything about the fact that <laughs> Uh, that Alan Ingebretson is going to outlive me. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be a problem for anybody here, which is, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm trying not to be offended about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, you got a prayer to pray. Yeah, I do have a prayer okay. to pray. All right, let me pray for you. I'm really excited for your sermon. Yeah, okay. All right, if you guys want to, you can extend your hand towards that. Skip. Jesus, thank you for uh, Skip. I ask that you would um, help him to really clearly communicate uh, the message you've put on his heart. I ask that as he shares from the word, that it would not just be words being read, but it would be your spirit moving through your word in our hearts. Lord, I ask this morning that as Skip shares from your word, that there would be, uh, through your Holy Spirit, that there would be um, godly and joyful um, conviction to pursue a deeper level of intimacy with you, and that we would... uh, that our hearts would be sensitive to you, Lord, that our awareness would be increased of your presence, of the way that you're moving, and of your goodness. We thank you, Jesus, for this morning. It is a wonderful day to worship you, to look into your word, and discover new depths of falling in love with you. Thank you for Skip. Would you bless him this morning and bless all of us as we get to discover more of you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Amen. So every night at my house, around 10.20 p.m., I go into the kitchen, and I open the refrigerator door, look around. Nothing has changed since the last hour when I looked in there before. But I'm beginning to prepare to have my fourth and final full meal before I go to bed, right? And as I stand there watching in the fridge, I hear voices every time. I think to myself, should I feed this now over 40, 
I must have a heavier Bible than most. This happens every week. Um, Should I feed this now over 40-year-old body a large meal so close to bedtime or not? Is that a mistake? And every, I hear in in my ear, I hear every doctor I've ever talked to telling me, skip, don't do it. Every article I've ever read on WebMD saying, skip, don't do it. I hear my wife saying, skip, don't do it. And yet standing there in front of the fridge, I want to. I want to eat. And so I do. (laughs) Every time. I just go ahead and, and have that fourth full meal just before going to bed. I do not understand what I do or what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Can you track with that? Yeah. And unfortunately for me, that's only one of my vices. That there are other vices that I have, other things that I keep turning to, and that though I want to stop doing it, I keep doing it. I have this, this, this rhythm in my life of doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things I know I should not do. I hope I got that right. right? Uh, and the fact is that some of those, have, uh, some of those things will cost me, uh, will cost me, you know, uh, 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 what, do, what do you call it? Heartburn, uh, esophageal, whatever, right? That kind of stuff. Some of them will, some of those decisions will cost me that. Maybe a, a spare tire uh, on my gut. But some of the consequences for my inability to overcome my propensity to sin, some of those consequences are huge, very costly. In my own life and uh, in the lives of people I love. So it's a problem. There is a, a, a metaphor that I've, uh, in the last year, have been turned on to. It's, it's actually been around for quite a while, but uh, I myself have just been introduced to it. It's a, it's a metaphor for helping us understand a, a skillful way of making those necessary changes. And the metaphor is a, a, an elephant and a rider and a path. Uh, um, uh, Jonathan Hyde talks about how the, uh, uh, the, the, the way that we make these necessary changes it has these three components. There is a rider who represents the intellect. And the rider steers the elephant, and he, he knows the things he should do and the things he shouldn't do. He knows all the reasons why. He has ideas about how to make that happen. Uh, and so there is the rider, and he directs the elephant. And there is a path, which is the, uh, the mechanics of that change. If, if any of you have uh, moved your alarm clock to the far side of the room, so that you would get up and have to walk across the room and not return to bed, that type of thing, like the mechanics of actually changing those bad habits. Those are the path. But then there is this elephant. The elephant is the emotional side of that 
necessary change. Uh, the, the way we feel about the changes that we need to make, the way we feel about the bad habits that we continue. The rider has some strength to direct the elephant, but he will quickly become exhausted and worn out if the elephant feels like going that direction. The path gives some direction for the change, but the elephant is large enough and strong enough that if the elephant feels like blazing a different path, he certainly can do it. No path will stop him, right? So we have to, if we're going to, if we're going to overcome our sin, we have to get in tune with the elephant. Uh, there's a reason I get stuck in my bad behavior. There's a feeling that drives my disobedience. So this morning, I want to talk about this question. What is the strength to overcome my struggle with sin? What, what, what is, not where is or how is, but what exactly is the power that affects change in my life? What is the strength to overcome my struggle with sin? What is my struggle? What is the struggle I have been made aware of? Is it, uh, uh, is it the struggle to never do that thing again? Is that what it looks like to have victory over the struggle? Or is victory over a struggle altogether different than never returning to the refrigerator at 10.20 p.m.? Whenever we talk about, in, in an environment like this, in a very churchy, Christian, gospel-centered environment, whenever we talk about bad behavior, we have a, a tendency to begin to, to put the cart before the horse, right? And so this morning, I want to I make some statements, bring some clarity. My goal this morning is to put our, our chronic bad behavior into an appropriate gospel perspective. If you are somebody who has, an inten who has intentionally kept yourself from the many benefits of walking with the Lord because of your propensity for bad behavior, this message is for you. If you are someone who has said to yourself, I just screwed up, I mean, I just messed up. I messed up two hours ago. And therefore, how can I now step into this room and worship God? He doesn't want to hear from me. That's bull. It's a, it's a lie from the enemy. It's so not true, right? And so I just want to bring that into uh, accurate perspective. If you are keeping yourself, if you're someone who says, how can I pray to God for help? I know he's mad at me because I keep screwing up in the same area. Then you are somebody who is keeping yourself uh, uh, away from the many benefits of walking with the Lord because of your propensity for sin. Uh, it, it, is, it is unnecessary. Um, we're talking today about your relationship with the Lord. And I want to share with you a story that is a, a true story where the events will serve for us as, uh, as informing our thoughts about overcoming our propensity for sin. I want to tell you that this passage, and this is why I, I, I kind of framed it in my funeral, I feel like it is the, the message of my life. 
This passage that we're going to look at uh, is the passage that saved me. That's why it's precious to me. It's not the passage where I met Jesus. That, that happened uh, many, many years ago as a result of uh, godly parents, um, really good pastors, Sunday school teachers, sweet old ladies who invited me to, well, only one, but uh, who, who invited me into her life and took me canoeing on Omina Lake, let me find and catch little turtles in the conversations that happened in these very simple mentorship relationships. That's how I met Jesus. But I remember the night, once again, studying, preparing for a class I was teaching at ABI, late into the night, being exposed to this passage and the Holy Spirit speaking to me and revealing this particular truth that I want to talk to you about tonight or this morning. And it setting me free. And some of you think that I'm maybe more free than I should be. <laughs> but I'm telling you that when I reflect and remember the truth of this passage, I am reminded again of my freedom in Christ. And so here's the story. Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me set the stage a little bit. This is the story of a nation who had disobeyed the Lord. And we can look at that nation and, and see how that nation played out and, and kind of apply it to our own individual lives. The nation of Israel had disobeyed the Lord. They had a habit of turning their attention to false gods. In fact, they were, they were letting their children uh, marry into uh, other faiths that would influence their grandchildren. And before, before too long, the entire nation had turned its back on the Lord. And so the Lord, in justice, had to discipline the nation, and they went into exile, into Babylon. But now the, the nation has, uh, has been restored to the promised land, that place of rest. And here now on this side of the grace of God, they have gathered at the feet of their great teacher, Ezra. Nehemiah, uh, the man uh, who this book is named after, had played a part in actually rebuilding the wall of the city. And uh, so today was a big day. It was a huge deal. This nation who had, uh, who had experienced the grace of God was gathered before its leaders, and Ezra was teaching them the word of God. It describes how as Ezra cracked open the scrolls and began to read to them, many of them, having grown up in, a, in another culture, uh, were not even aware of the Hebrew language. And so Ezra would read the Hebrew scriptures, and then he would explain the meaning to them. It was, it was ABI. It was uh, teaching them the word of God over this long process. And as Ezra cracked open the scroll, the entire nation that was gathered there stood in reverence for the words that they were hearing. And so Ezra would read the words, and he would stop, and he would explain the words to these people. They are becoming a people who are learning how to live out the grace of God that had been extended to them. And as they read the words of God and the people were being washed 
by the word of God while they were being exposed to the truth and the character of God through his word, there, there was a change in the atmosphere. Ezra looking down at his scroll, Nehemiah standing over here next to the stage, listening to Ezra, and then he looks out into the crowd and he notices uh, 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 some, something's going on out there. All the people are mourning, they're weeping. Because as Ezra was explaining to them the, the, uh, the character of God that they are called to emulate, they are becoming aware of their great sin. And so Ezra would say, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the people out there are saying, oh, uh, we still do. Thou shalt not steal. And the people out there are saying, ah, ah. again, we still. We're still doing that. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day. And they say, oh, we're not doing that. And as the, as the law of God was exposed to them, they were be, feeling convicted and realizing that though they are on this side of the grace of God, they still have not overcome their sin. And Nehemiah witnessing this this uh, change in the atmosphere, what was once gratitude is becoming mourning. He goes up and he, I just can picture him pushing Ezra away from the microphone. Hey, I have something to say to you about your mourning today. And that's the passage I want to read to you. Ezra uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. There has been a, a, a repentance in the parts of the people. They have been exposed to the truth of God, to the commands of God in their life, and they recognize that's not us now, and we are repentant. We want to turn from our evil ways and turn towards the Lord. There's this passage in 2 Corinthians that I love that really uh, helps us understand appropriate repentance. It says, for godly grief produces repentance. If you are remorseful for your sin, there there is a repentance to that. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In other words, if you regret your sin, it leads you to a repentance, and that repentance leads you to salvation. Uh, and that salvation does not leave regret. It, if you are still mourning sin that you have repented of, that you have asked the Lord's forgiveness for, uh, it, it is forgiven. It's handled. Your standing before the Lord is made clean. In, in Corinthians, the passage goes on. It says, 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly repentance produces salvation that leaves no regret, but worldly grief just produces uh, 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 death. Worldly grief, grief that says, I know I shouldn't keep returning to the refrigerator at 10.20 p.m. I know I shouldn't keep returning to this perpetual uh, returning of sin, right? I know I shouldn't do that, but I don't know what to do. I, I have no assistance, no help. There's no hope for me. That kind of regret only leads you to death. And Nehemiah says, hey, listen to me. I'm going to give your repentance some direction so that you know where to go with your repentance. And here it is. Then he said to them in verse 10, you're on this side of the grace of God. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah says, let me give some direction to your repentance now that you are on this side of the grace of God. Do not mourn. Do not weep. Your past is forgiven before the Lord. It gets tricky when we bring people into this, right? But before the Lord, he says, I've, I've, I've removed that past as far away as the east is from the west. You are on this side of grace of God. Do not mourn. I would say this, your mourning and your regret for your sin is legitimate, but it is not an end. Do you understand? In other words, there is no point, there is no value in you continuing to mourn your forgiven sin. Over time, in fact, if you find yourself stuck, and I, I, I think back to high school, I have a couple things that I was a part of in high school, and quite honestly, every now and then when I, I remember that, and my stomach starts to turn, right? I, I remember that, and I think, oh, I hate that, that I did that. I regret that I did that. Uh, that kind of perpetual returning to mourning for sin is actually demotivating over time. And the fact is that your sin is no longer your truest state. You are forgiven, and that is the truth. I've told you many times that I, I see a, a counselor here in town, Jennifer Dye, on a fairly regular basis. And I, I remember sitting in her office, telling my tale. You know, we become the story we tell of ourselves. You realize that, right? I was telling her my story, puking my guts out to her, right? Uh, telling her who I am and how I got to be who I am and... She's sitting across from me, and she says to me, Skip, uh, borrowing language that I had used, she said to me, Skip, you know, uh, I just don't think you're as jacked up as you think you are. And I thought, uh, I'm going to need to get a second opinion. <laughs> uh, 
The fact is that your past is forgiven. The truer state of who you are and what you are is that you are someone who now lives in the promised land on this side of the grace of God. You wanted your story to be that you knew how to conquer sin on yourself, on your, by yourself. You wanted your story to be that you were the guy who never screwed up, who never did wrong. You were the one out of all the people in all the world, in all, the, in all of history, you were the one who didn't need Jesus' salvation to be right with the Lord. You wanted that to be your story, but it isn't. That's not your story. You're the guy who screwed up. You're the guy who keeps screwing up. And you're the guy who stands now on this side of the grace of God. You're the guy who stands as a, as a, 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 a beneficiary of the work of Christ on the cross. That's who you are. And so do not mourn your past sin. It's not productive any longer. Instead, and here is the required risk of somebody who will fully embrace the grace of God. Here it is. Instead of mourning your sin, eat the fat and drink the sweet. In other words, those many benefits that the Lord has for you, the opportunity to boldly come before him in prayer, the opportunity to celebrate and worship him, the opportunity to uh, very liberally give thanks to him for the gifts in your life, the opportunity to enjoy the benefits of Jesus. That is your new directive. Don't mourn. Enjoy the fat. Drink the sweet. And furthermore, Nehemiah says, if there's people in your world who are lacking the fat and the sweet, share it with them. Extend the same grace that you have received from me. Extend it to those who are lacking that grace. This is your repentance. Mourning, perpetually mourning your past, your regret, is of no good any longer. Instead, enjoy the fat, drink the sweet, and send gifts. Why? Because this is where your strength comes from. Your strength to overcome is the joy of the Lord. So enjoy the Lord. Uh, I want to put our chronic bad behavior in its appropriate perspective. I want to talk this morning a, a little bit about the promise versus the law. These are, these are parts of our, our, our history as people of faith. It's certainly a part of actually the nation of Israel's history, and it's something that we often get confused, tripped up. This is why we have the tendency to put the cart before the horse. So let me uh, hopefully add some clarity. I want to remind you about uh, the man Abraham, who is uh, the, the father of our faith, right? Not only our faith, but the faith of Judaism, and actually the, uh, the, uh, one of the fathers of uh, the faith of Islam, although it's, uh, they certainly approach it differently. Uh, I got a picture of Abraham. You know, it's a real challenge to uh, find an actual photograph of Abraham uh, online. This is a, this is a pretty, uh, I, I, I recognize this is a very disturbing image, rightfully so, right? Um, uh, this is an image of Abraham about to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Um, 
This is not the story I'm referencing, but this is one of the only images I could find, uh, photos of Abraham that I could find. Um, so it is disturbing. It is a part of our faith, though. Um, apparently, uh, the kind of guy who would be willing to sacrifice his son is also the kind of guy who doesn't like to have his photo taken. And so <laughs> this, is, this is what we have to work with. But let me tell you a little bit about Abraham. Abraham was a man who obeyed the Lord and followed the Lord. He had very little understanding of the Lord, but he put all of his confidence in him. And there was a point in Abraham's life where he was questioning if God is actually going to fulfill his promise made to him. And so, Abraham, or so the Lord said, Abraham, let's talk. Let's meet. I'm going to come and once again confirm my promise to you. And before, before the Lord did that, Abraham sat down on the ground and he leaned against a rock and he became asleep. And so while Abraham laid there and to totally out of it, <laughs> incapacitated, knocked out, asleep, unable, unable to do a single thing for himself, excuse me, <laughs> the Lord comes to him and says to him, I promise you, I will give you a miraculous heir who will be a blessing to the entire world. I promise you, I will bring you to a place of rest from your struggle. I make this promise to you, Abraham. Look at you. You are, uh, you are unconscious. You are not able to bring this promise about by yourself at all. You can do nothing to contribute to the promise I'm making you right now. This is all me. I am making you this promise. And by the quality of my own character, I will fulfill this promise for you entirely by myself. Right? That's the promise. And that promise relates to our salvation. God says, I promise to come and rescue you from your sin, and I will do it. I will do it. And so Jesus comes to earth, and he takes the wrath of God upon himself as he is nailed to the cross, and he himself does everything necessary for our salvation. That's the promise. The book of Galatians describes that many years later, 430 years after the promise came the law, something, something altogether different. So I didn't have as much trouble finding a, a photo of uh, Moses. Um, this, this photo actually is I, it was, uh, it was kind of surprising. It's, it's very popular with the Second Amendment crowd. And if you, those of you who got, got that joke uh, dated yourself, it's Charlton Heston. Anyway, okay, moving on. Um, uh, Moses uh, comes 430 years after the promise, something altogether different, and he comes and he brings a law, and he says, this law will teach you how to live skillfully as image bearers. There are blessings to obeying this law. There are certainly consequences to disobeying the law. But this law is not about your salvation. This law is simply about you becoming skillful as someone who is uh, uh, an image bearer. You represent God on the earth. This is the character of God. Obey it. Um, one has to do with your salvation and is a promise to us that God himself has fulfilled. 
The other has to do with your capacity to develop yourself skillfully, uh, wisdom, becoming actually effective and good at accurate at bearing the image of God. Once you have decided to depend entirely on Jesus for your righteousness, your victory of sin has nothing to do with skill or wisdom. It has everything to do with acceptance and proximity to God. In other words, there is freedom to fail. In fact, I would say to you, if you are pursuing the Lord, if you are somebody who is on this side of the grace of God and you want to grow in your capacity to be an image bearer, you should plan to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to screw that up, maybe even before this day is out. And when you do, get up. Don't mourn. Enjoy the fat. Drink the sweet. And share the grace that you have just been reminded of with those around you. I would suggest that if you'll do that, that you will be well on your way to accurately displaying the image of our Creator. There's a tendency another tendency for us. It's a tendency to want to pay him back. Once we have experienced his grace, to make ourselves deserving of his grace, and often we do this by promising him, we'll never do those things again. And so we say uh, to the Lord, we say, well, I'll just tell you what Israel did here. Israel Shortly after this story, after Nehemiah confronted them and said, no, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength for overcoming sin. Shortly after that, chapter 9 describes the whole nation getting back together and they said, we're going to make a promise to the Lord. We are going to make a covenant to the Lord. And here's the deal. We know the sins that brought us into exile now. Dear God, we promise we will never break the Sabbath again. Dear God, we promise we will never allow our children to marry outside the faith again. Dear God, we promise we will never deny uh, our tithes to the ministry of your people, your priests, and your tabernacle, your temple. We promise we're never going to do that again. And God says, I'm so not impressed. You are promise breakers. That's who you are. Why are you making these promises to me? They mean nothing, right? They accomplish nothing. Don't make me these promises. In fact, a few short chapters later, and as the book ends, in Nehemiah chapter 12, we come back and we find that within two years, in very gross, extreme ways, the entire nation had broken every one of those promises. Why are you making promises? Stop making promises to the Lord that you're going to quit doing that, that you'll never do that again. It's ineffective and it's unnecessary. It doesn't work. It's, if anything, those promises and you're breaking them uh, become a distraction and an unnecessary shame generator. Who are you kidding? 
instead of making promises, enjoy the grace of God. Stop your mourning. Enjoy the fat. Sweet, uh, drink the sweet and share the grace of God with others. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. The God of joy for strength is keeping promises, not requiring promise kept, promises kept. The God of joy for strength is inviting lost ones in rather than keeping a distance. The God of joy for strength is sharing grace rather than keeping accounts. The God of joy for strength is enjoying rather than perpetual mourning. The truth is, this is a message about our relationship with God. But at the same time, you and I, we are image bearers. We just ask you to consider this. Is my treatment of my children, my spouse, my friends, even my enemies, is my treatment of them consistent with this character of God, this, this capacity to enjoy what they bring to the table, even though they are severely lacking? <laughs> is it my capacity to move beyond the the regret and the mourning that has tainted our relationship in the past? Am I sharing with them a grace that looks familiar, resembles the grace that God has once shared with me in His Son, Jesus? Did you know we have a number of ways to respond to Church on the Rock, and I just want to remind you of those. Going to go into worship. We have people off to the side who would be glad to pray with you about these things that we talked about this morning or really anything at all. We're offering receptacles around the room. We also have communion tables. And when Paul says, don't take the communion in a hurry, he says, examine yourself, first of all. I used to always read that, like, examine myself, make sure that I have not screwed up in the last couple of hours, right? Otherwise, if I drink that juice, I might get sick. That seems to be the, the, the threat there. <laughs> the truth is that that examining doesn't mean examine yourself to make sure you've got it right. The examination that you should be doing now as you prepare to take communion is, am I fully trusting in the grace of God for the forgiveness of my sins? Is that what I stand on for my righteousness? Or am I still trying to prove that I deserve His grace, that I can earn His grace. And if you this morning have accepted the gift of God, there's the communion table. Enjoy the fat, drink the sweet, and celebrate your salvation. Amen. Understand? Amen. That was awesome. So uh, when our, uh, Sarah and I's firstborn son, Finn, was just a few months old, we were doing the first, first kid thing where you, you know, you hold their hand, you say the right words, you rock them for the right minute, hold them in the right position. They finally fall asleep after two hours. 
right? And if they wake up, then you got another two hours to get, you know, you do the whole thing. So first time kid. We had a, I had a friend stop by, a guy I really wanted to hang out with. Been years of us trying to hang out, and he called. He's like, hey, I'm in the neighborhood. I'm going to drop by. I got my two-year-old with me. We're just going to say hi real quick. And I had just done, you know, the two-hour routine, right, <laughs> to get him to sleep. And I was like, oh, okay, you can stop by, but just be quiet because if you wake my son up, you know, I lose another two hours. And uh, so he stopped by with his two-year-old. You can't get a two-year-old to be quiet. So like two minutes in, you know, my Finn wakes up screaming because now he's overtired. And so anyways, I had to kick him out. He left with, you know, my friend left. So I saw him the next day at, uh, and, you know, he apologized, said sorry, which, you know, we kind of joked about it. And then I, every time after that, for about three months, every time I saw him, he said, oh, we really got to hang out again. But I'm just the worst, aren't I? Man, I woke your son up. And it's not really a big deal. It's like, yeah, you did, but let's move on. The thing is, we never actually really hung out because every time I saw him, he just apologized forever. And I would go, just stop, stop, let's move on. Let's have a friendship and let's actually connect about something because I really wanted to connect with him. So here's my point. Uh, in a relationship with the Lord, our repentance before him is actually something joyful that he's already forgiven us and moved on, right? We already made the blunder. All we have to do is just say, all right, how do we move forward, Lord? And so if when Skip was sharing, you thought, there's areas in my life I just keep failing or areas that there's shame or areas that there's conviction, act on the conviction. Say, be honest with the Lord, be honest with yourself and just move on joyfully. God is right there. He's waiting for you. He's pumped and he wants to connect with you. He's already moved on. Don't go on for months and months. Oh God, I'm no worse. Just say yes to him and move on. So you can uh, hang out, connect with people, leave the chairs where they are. We don't officially end until 1230, but if you want to help, we would love help. You can come meet us right here on the stage. Thanks so much. Have a great Sunday. Bless you.